brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. The research that just uh, I found most powerful that I just kept coming up against and that I think we have this real resistance to believing yeah. is that higher education in, for individual students might still be a good engine of social mobility. For the country as a whole, it is the opposite. Mm. It is a force that is really perpetuating inequality that is, is uh, creating a barrier to mobility for millions and millions of students. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. It's my pleasure to have as our guest today, Paul Tuff. Paul is the author, most recently, of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. His three previous books include How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and The Hidden Power of Character which was translated into 27 languages and spent more than a year on the New York Times hardcover and paperback bestseller lists. Paul is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine. His writing has also appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, GQ, and Esquire, and on the op-ed page of The New York Times. He is a speaker on topics including education, parenting, equity, and student success. He has worked as an editor of the New York Times Magazine and Harper's Magazine, and as a reporter and producer for the public radio program, This American Life. He was the founding editor of Open Letters, an online magazine. Paul lives with his wife and two sons in Austin, Texas. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. I am so excited to talk about your books. I've been a big fan for a long, long while. Um, I'd love to jump in a little bit um, talking about both uh, the years that matter most and how children succeed. And one of the through lines in that, in both of us, I think, is stress and what stress does to developing brains, as you talked about, and how children succeed and in performance in the years that matter most. Um, <laughs> I should ask this right, right now is a, is a it's an interesting time, obviously, with all the changes. And I think, I think in the years that matter most, you kind of presaged um, some of the challenges that, that have really flourished in the, in the recent with Black Lives Matter and, and looks, looking at equ- issues of equity. Um, to talk about stress, though, you know, you point out several times that students and parents approach the whole college admissions process with a huge amount of anxiety and the focus on test prep and building out the resumes and academic profile. With all that and all the disruptions that we now have in this world, do you have any kind of off the top of your head advice for, for, for parents right now and kids who find um, you know, college admissions hard and, and, inc- and even more so since, uh, since COVID? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that main advice is to chill out as much as possible, <laughs> um, which is extremely difficult for all of us these days. I mean, I, I guess I think, you know, more broadly, uh, I find there's something really useful in understanding the the science of stress. Um, you know, it doesn't actually get rid of the stress, understanding exactly what's happening, but there's something about it under understanding, you know, the neurophysiology of what stress does to us, that that I find it makes it more manageable. Because so much of the stress that I think we feel is like stress about our stress. <laughs> um, like, you know, you get ready to give a talk and your mouth gets dry and your heart starts beating fast. And those are like really bad things to happen when you're about to give a talk. And so then you get more nervous. And then, yeah. <laughs> uh, But if you just understand, oh, okay, right, I'm, I've got a I've got a basic like Neanderthal brain in there that is uh, thinks I'm about to get you know chased by something and it's preparing for me to actually run and I'm not actually going to run anywhere. Then you can you can adapt and you can say this is just a thing that's happening to me rather than something that it, that that uh, is is essential to to who I am. Um, and I think that more broadly that we can all think about that right now. Like this is a time 
time of deep uncertainty. Humans do not do well with uncertainty. The end of high school and the beginning of college is a time of a lot of change and a lot of stress. And so I think, you know, that doesn't mean I think we have to completely protect our kids from it. It doesn't mean we have to throw them in the deep end and just assume they're going to be okay. But I think the more that we can uh, be aware of what stress is doing to the to our kids and help them be aware of it and manage it, the better. That's great. I love, I love that. And I'd love to dig in on there because uh, you, you sort of point out um, there's kind of episodic stress, you know, before, uh, before giving a speech as you would do or before kids take an SAT. And those are sort of manageable stresses. We all have those from time to time. We don't necessarily want to shield kids from those as opposed to kind of toxic stress that's, that's, that's overwhelming to, to developing brains and, and kind of unrelenting. Um, could talk a little bit about that because it, it, it sure seems to me that, that that some of the kids you talk about, of Kiki and Nicholas, are are, are are these kids who where that stress is way beyond you know taking a test or giving or, or dry mouth. It's 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 the lives that they live, and why is that so bad? Yeah. So some of the research that I wrote about um, in How Children Succeed and that you've written about as well, I think is is really important. And you're right. There, there are these moments, uh, are these situations where the kind of uh, small term stress, small, uh, short term stress that some of us have to deal with um, turns into chronic and repeated stress that is uh, doesn't doesn't actually make us stronger in any way. It just it just debilitates us. And there are a lot of kids, especially those who are growing up um, in poverty or in stressful home situations for whom that's a daily reality. Uh, right. Kiki's one of them. Um, and so, uh, uh, I think, I mean, I think there's two things that we need to think about when we're looking at that research on, on chronic stress. One is, you know, if, if, if it's you that it's happening to, or someone you love, um, being aware of that science, I think is really important as well. And realizing that it's not just something you can talk yourself out of or use, you know, the right sort of strategies to, to manage stress. It is something where you really need, um, you need a major change, right. And, and we need to protect kids, especially the most vulnerable kids from that sort of chronic stress. But then also when we just look at the whole country, at, at our society, I think we need to recognize that stress is an equity issue too, that, that the kind of stress that we, we subject, um, uh, young children to the kind of situations that our society puts young children mm -hmm. in is it's not evenly distributed, right? So, uh, children of color, low-income children, children living in vulnerable communities, they are the ones who are experiencing the most stress. And that stress, we, we know from the science, um, you know, it affects everything from health to test scores to school performance. Um, and so to the extent that we want to level the playing field and create a, a fairer society, it's, it's, uh, it's a subject that we've got to think about in, on the policy level as well as uh, in terms of individual children and families. And one of the one of the um, in uh, how children succeed, you talk about adverse childhood experiences, right? Where you divorce in the family, incarceration, death, you know, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, da da da, and all these things as proxies for stress that kids grow up in. So that if I, as a mom or a dad, am really struggling with one of these things, that that stress will affect my kids. And so to your point from a, from a, a policy perspective, from a society perspective, if we really want to help kids succeed and grow, you know, nurture healthy brains and go on to college and not just get to college, but get through college. One of the things we know is that if we support their parents, their parents support their kids. Because you talk about in, in, in How Children Succeed that the, the one of the, the, the kind of recipe for developing resilience is dealing with things that are challenging, but dealing, doing it with a parent or two or a caregiver or two who can be supportive of you, who can be high licking and grooming, right? Like, like Mimi's rats. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that was one of the striking things in the years that matter most is, is a bunch of these kids had all kinds of headwinds, but some of them had parents who really nurtured them and said, it's out of girl, you're going to do this. And others said, why bother? Why don't you come home? 
Yeah. So for, for the, for me, the adverse childhood experience research was really formative and I wrote about it a, a lot in how children succeed. I know you've written about it as well. The person I learned about it the most from was Nadine Burke Harris, who, when I met her a decade ago, was a, a physician, a pediatrician in San Francisco. Um, she's now the California Surgeon General. So she's trying to figure out um, policy solutions to uh, adverse childhood experience scores. But yeah, so as you just summarized, it is a bit of a blunt instrument. It's just your A score is just a number of these, how many of the, these, I think, nine different categories of stressful experience uh, or traumatic experience you, uh, you experienced as a child. But what we know from the, the neuroscience is that each of those um, adverse experiences uh, affects it sort of adds to the to the load that children are facing. Um, and I think one of the things that's really striking to me about that list is how many of them do have to do with with families, right? Um, some of them are, are pretty external things like, you know, you survive a natural disaster. Um, but so many of them have to do with neglect, abuse, and just the presence of certain things in the family, as you said, incarceration, um, addiction, violence, etc. So, I think about it a lot in terms of the pandemic. You know, the pandemic is, it is, uh, I think it counts as a, as an, as an A score of one for all of us now. Um, you know, that, that, that for everybody it is stressful. Um, but there are families for whom, you know, when you have, uh, the, the sort of superstructure of, uh, privilege that lets you deal with uh, an event like this without it disrupting your life all that much, um, I think that's going to be less likely to cause serious stressful reactions in kids. But for families for whom the pandemic and related job loss and recession really pushes them over the edge, um, it is increasing the stress for, for kids uh, many times. So again, I feel like for parents, the, the, the lesson I take when I think about it myself is, is that, yeah, that our job is not just to lower our kids a score to zero and protect them from all kinds of stress. It is to create this, this sort of warm, nurturing, safe environment where they can feel like they have uh, a certain amount of security and then go out into the world, experience stressful uh, stressful things like we're all going to do and have a certain kind of resilience that they, that they learn from us. Um, and that's really hard to do. You know, the world is a chaotic and strange place as we've learned this year more than ever. Um, but I think if anything, it just underlines how important it is for parents to try to create, uh, try to create that, that sort of secure base that kids can start from and how important it is for all of us from a policy point of view to try to, um, make policies that can, that, that enable more and more families to create that secure base at home. I was looking at the, um, the, there's a, a study done, I think a year and a half ago by the Robert Wood Johnson foundation that looked at the sources of adolescent stress. Uh, it was a slightly different model than, than e-scores, but it found that the greatest sources of stress for adolescents, the for the top four were one poverty, two trauma, three racism, and four, intense pressure to excel. And so one of the things, you, you know, we, we talk about this, you, you mentioned this, the kind of unevenness uh, of impact, um, you know, with, with, with disadvantage and certainly uh, with, with COVID, um, that what I'm experiencing is hard, but what I know other people experience may be may, may many, many times more difficult, um, in part because as with A-scores, um, in, I, get, I gather they're kind of not additive, they're, they're, they're kind of multiplicative, right? The intersectionality of being, being uh, the, uh, you know, uh, low income versus and first gen and minority, and that these things really compound. And when you think especially about racism and, and Black Lives Matter and, and so many of the terrific kids whom you profile in your book are kids of color. And the thing that, that struck me over and over and over was the degree to which they were constantly questioning do I belong here? They had the, they had the academic chops to be, you know, at Princeton, you know, all, you know, all the way on down, but constantly questioning, you know, do, do I belong here? And so talked about the, the, the social pressure for many of them was, was an order of magnitude more challenging than the academic pressure. And I imagine that might be surprising to some people. Cause I think, I think it's an easy narrative for us to think that if, if kids don't stick in college, it's just simply because they couldn't handle, they couldn't handle the academics and your book makes it abundantly clear that it's way more complicated than that. Do you want to pick a kid and, and sort of talk us through what, what his or her experience looked like? 
Sure. I mean, um, maybe we could talk about Matthew Rivera, who's um, a student I met at uh, Trinity College. Um, and I think he's an example of how each of those factors really is additive. So he was a, um, a great student in high school. Uh, he's a, um, identifies both as, as African-American and Hispanic, came from the Bronx, uh, came to this, you know, super uh, uh, elite seeming uh, college, Trinity, which has a, a very high income uh, student population, a lot of white kids, uh, a lot of white kids from prep schools. Um, and it just very different from the experience that he had had growing up in the Bronx. Um, and so, you know, he, he gets to Trinity. And I think what we expect is that a student like that, a first generation student, a lot of, of his struggles are going to be academic, right? And there's no question the, the, the training that he got in his high school was not the same as the training that some of these students had gotten in their schools. Mm. But what I found was that he sort of figured out school pretty fast. Like he had some, some rough moments in September and October and some, some tests and essays that he didn't do as well as he should have. Um, but he, he actually bounced back from that pretty easily. Um, but what was much harder for him was uh, the social experience at Trinity and, and the way he experienced it, especially in freshman year, had a lot to do with race, that he just felt like the white kids on campus, which was the vast majority of kids on campus, did, didn't didn't see him, didn't respect him, didn't, uh, you know, didn't, didn't make him feel welcome at all. And he kept trying in different ways to bridge that divide. Uh, and it really wasn't working for him. And, and so I, I wrote about him mostly in freshman year. I subsequently have gone back and, and, uh, seen him when I was, uh, out talking about my book last fall, he, I think just finished his senior year. And what, what's amazing to me about his, uh, how he got through that period, uh, you know, he thought about dropping out a lot, but he didn't, he found, so Trinity, is a pretty white school in a pretty uh, non-white place, Hartford, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, and Matthew really found this community among uh, black leaders and activists in Hartford who were helping kids there. Um, and it gave him this real sense of meaning and, and purpose in his life. It mostly took him away from the Trinity campus. Um, but it, it, you know, he said he sort of saw it as a job going to school at Trinity and it was a job that let him do the work that he cared about in Hartford. Um, what happened after I finished my reporting is that actually in his last couple of years of school, he was able to integrate those two parts of his life much better. So, um, he was able to, to, to change Trinity enough and Trinity was able to change enough uh, that he was able to really bridge a lot of the, the, the gaps that have always existed between Trinity and Hartford, um, get Trinity students more involved in Hartford, get Hartford people more involved in Trinity. And by the time he finished, he really felt like a full member of that, of that community. So, um, you know, I, I, I think there are lots of ways that his story is, uh, is a cautionary tale about how difficult it is for students of color in, in majority white institutions for first generation students, uh, at institutions like that. But it's also, I think, um, uh, in lots of ways, a positive story that when students are able to persist, which Matthew did partly through his own uh, character and partly through the help that he got from people uh, inside and outside Trinity, they can really make a huge difference. And I think, you know, this, this unlikely Trinity student had a bigger effect on the campus than uh, maybe anybody else in his class. Wow, that's such a great story. Trinity is such a big part of your book and part of it, not just Matthew Rivera's story, but looking at the pressures that Trinity, like a lot of places, has to craft its class. Um, can you talk a little bit about Angel Perez and the, the challenges that universities have to, um, to, to extend a hand to, to kids like Matthew and to make that work versus the financial pressures that they face? Because I think a lot of people who don't, you know, dig into higher admissions don't understand those tensions there. Yeah, so uh, so Angel Perez was was the head of uh, admissions at Trinity during the years that I was reporting there. Mostly, I think it was two thousand seventeen. He has now moved moved on from Trinity, and he's the head of uh, NACAC, this national organization of um, college advisors and counselors. Um, uh, but he gave me great access to trying to see and understand the work that he was doing. Uh, and what was so striking to me was that, you know, he, he had grown up a lot like Matthew Rivera. He was um, uh, a Latino kid in the Bronx uh, who had a, had a pretty rough childhood, got to a great 
institution um, of higher education and uh, leveraged that into a, an amazing professional life. But it, it gave him this, this real sense of mission uh, to take institutions like Trinity and make them more truly diverse and more uh, vehicles of social mobility for students like Matthew. But what, what was so striking watching him work was how even with that full institutional commitment on his part and on the part of the rest of the leadership of Trinity, it was really, really hard to do. And that really came down to money. Um, you know, Trinity at the time was losing, I think, $9 million a year. Um, maybe it was 19 million. I can't remember. Uh, they were in the hole, you know, like a lot of, of, you know, liberal arts, Northeastern private colleges are these days. And so they, they, like lots of other institutions needed to make their admissions decisions based on, um, the financial status of their, of the students they were considering. And what, what I came to understand is that that's true about, uh, at, almost every uh, private institution, if not actually every private institution. Trinity, you know, under Angel was just one of the only ones that was willing to talk about it. Um, you know, I think most most institutions talk about admissions as really being a meritocracy, that we are somehow selecting the very best students. And, you know, all the ones we, we chose are by definition better than the ones that we didn't choose. Um, but that's not what it felt like for Angel at all. He knew every day that he was making this calculation between what he could afford to do, what these students could pay, what Trinity needed uh, in all of its ways, both what they needed from students like Matthew and what they needed from students, you know, whose parents could endow a new uh, wing of the gym. Um, and and so I think that's a really, that's that's a very tough balancing act for an institution like Trinity. And with the pandemic, it's only going to get harder. I can only imagine what admissions is going to be like this year. But my guess is that there's the pressures uh, to uh, help the bottom line are going to be way more present at, for a school like Trinity than they were even a few years ago. Yeah, I saw um, I saw a webinar with, uh, with Angel Perez and, and was making that point that the... Um, then enrollments are the lifeblood. You need enough full-paying students to then pursue any other institutional priority. Um, uh, you know, I was a Pell Grant kid myself, um, and I always have this sense that that there were people who had a whole lot more than did I. Um, but I think that that's a lot more stark today than it was, you know, almost thirty years ago when I started. Um, well, more than thirty years ago when I started college. Um, the one thing. Well, I don't want to. Cut you off. But the one, the one thing I just want to add, and then please remember what you were about to ask, but the one thing I want to add is just how, to, we've been talking about stress, is just how stressful that, not, not only that situation is for students, but the lack of, of transparency on the part of colleges. Because I think, you know, the students that you teach, the, certainly the students I, I met, they really have internalized this idea that admissions is a meritocracy, right? So every decision that gets made, every test score, every admission or, uh, or you know, getting, getting turned down from a school feels like um, a judgment on who you are. And, and the, <laughs> if there's anything good about what's going on, uh, what I saw in the Trinity admissions office, it's that, um, you know, it, that you can lose that belief, right? Like it, if, if you're not getting into Trinity, especially if you're a low income student, there are a million other reasons why uh, you may be being turned down. And I think that's true. That's true everywhere. But it, but, it, but it puts an additional stress on students and it especially puts an additional stress on low income students who are getting turned down or getting lousy aid packages and not really understanding why. If they if they knew more about how these uh, colleges were financed, I think they'd understand better. Yeah, I think that would be helpful. And you, you start the book talking about Shan Torres, who you know, who talks about that. Uh, what did she say? You know, I wish they could see me, right? That I'm not just an essay, I'm not a test score, but I send stuff in, and they and then they they sit back and judge me, and that's pretty that's pretty intense. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what, what, what struck me about her was that she was this sort of, she believed in the meritocracy more than anyone else I met. <laughs> um, you know, so she was this, this student in New York who I met and, uh, when she was, I think, just finishing her junior year in high school. And so I, I stayed in touch with her through her senior year um, and was with her on, at this moment where she was hearing from uh, Ivy League colleges about whether she was going to get in or not, sitting on a park bench and uh, outside her high school in uh, West Harlem. And yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great reporting opportunity. It was a rough day for her. <laughs> but for me as a journalist, I like to be able to to be there at that moment as she was experiencing. This was great. And a lot of it was because she was uh, 
you know, really opening up about what it felt like. And, and exactly for, for a student who has been led to believe in college admissions as a meritocracy, um, those decisions are just, uh, shattering when, especially when they don't go your way, it, it becomes, you know, not only does it, you know, practically matter where she goes to, to college for a student like Shannon getting into an Ivy League institution or a, a similar uh, college, you know, economists will explain to us how much of a difference it can make to a, to a kid like her. Um, but even more so, I think what was uh, so difficult, so painful for her that day was that um, she really believed that that admissions at a place like Penn, which was her first choice school, was a straight meritocracy. If she didn't get in, it was because she wasn't worthy. Um, I think, you know, on some level, she knew that wasn't quite true, but it was hard for her to separate herself from that feeling. I had the student who was from a very different background from Shannon. Uh, she was from a, a very well-to-do family at an at a, at a elite independent girls school in DC. And I just couldn't disabuse her of the idea that this college admissions process is a meritocracy. She just couldn't let go of the idea that, that these folks weren't really sorting and seeking out the best students across the country. And, and I, I tried to, to help her understand that the people making college admissions decisions are not this kind of cohort of, of, of gray-haired, you know, 50-year-old plus, and I just turned 50, there are people sitting around, uh, you know, surveying the landscape and saying, on whom should we confer the opportunity to go to these wonderful institutions that so often it's kind of 25-year-olds who are really good at working, walking backwards, and they've, they've, they're now the associate director of admissions missions, uh, and that really they're not so much making these decisions so much as uh, implementing the priorities of the college, uh, that the president and the trustees um, say, here's what, here's what we need, here are the kind of folks we need, uh, and then and, and go make it happen, and that it simply is not a, a pure meritocracy. So if you get in, you're, you're worthy, and if you don't, you're somehow I- I- insufficient. Um, much more complicated than that, right? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, I, I know you know this and have, have told me this, but I think so much of those priorities too are set by families. You know, I mean, I think it, it's exactly, uh, goes back to what we were talking about, about how, how parents, how families create, um, uh, environments for young people that affect how they deal with stress. Right. So yeah, applying to college is always going to be stressful. Taking the SAT is always going to be stressful getting in or not getting in starting school, all of it's stressful. Right. But there are lots of ways that we as parents can make that stress, uh, easier and more manageable. And there are lots and lots of ways <laughs> that we can make it worse. Um, I think that sense that admissions is a, a meritocracy is something that a lot of parents and especially affluent parents believe, even if they're saying out loud that they don't believe it. I think a lot of, a lot of us really internalize that idea that, um, you know, we need external validation of how our family is doing, how we are doing as parents and college admissions and test scores are a really handy, uh, proxy for that. Right. If our kid gets into a really selective school, we must be doing something right. Even if lots of the time it doesn't feel that way. Um, and vice versa, you know, if our kid doesn't get into the the school that we think they should get into or they think they should get into, somehow we feel like we as parents have failed. And we inevitably put that stress that we feel onto our kids. And, and I think so much of it, uh, especially in affluent families, does come from parents. So the first thing I think that parents can do to try to help their kids manage that stress is uh, check their own um, their own feelings about this stuff. And I think for so many of us, when we're being honest with ourselves, we feel like it's a judgment of us too. But I think especially, I love, I love that, um, you know, that it really is not a meritocracy because, because one, I think that the, the kind of follow-up idea of it being a meritocracy is that is therefore completely fair. And as the last handful of months with Black Lives Matter movement have shown, oh, heavens, we are far away from a society that is fully fair. And from my perspective, the only thing worse than these kind of grinding and glaring and persistent inequities in in our society is to act like those inequities don't exist, right? To tell people that the world's completely fair, it's completely meritocratic when everything in their experience is telling them a very different story. So I, you know, for, I mean, obviously the world that I work in is mostly with, with, with high socioeconomic background, um, but for the work that I do with, with kids who are, who are 
born with more talent and advantage. Um, I think being really honest and open about the ways in which the world is not fair, at least removes some measure of that stress that they otherwise feel like um, they've, they're, they're coming, coming up short um, on some unseen yardstick. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, but I also feel like it, it is really important for those of us who have more advantages to be aware of that, that absence of meritocracy as well, because, you know, the flip side of that is when, if you are a kid with a lot of advantage and you, you know, manage to get the right test prep and you get a great test score and you get into a great institution and you take advantage of all of the advantages that, you know, that, you know, and I know from, from our, our reporting and our work, the system gives to families who start out with lots of privileges and advantages. If you believe it's a meritocracy and you want to believe it's a meritocracy because it worked for you. <laughs> if you believe it's a meritocracy, <laughs> then you won. believe, exactly. Then you believe, well, I'm here because I deserve to be at this great institution and everyone who didn't get in is not here because they didn't deserve to be. And if you, if that institution happens to be, you know, mostly affluent white kids, um, you can internalize that frankly racist idea that, that kids like you are, uh, are better than, than kids who are not getting into schools like this. And, And we invent lots of reasons for why that is having to do with, you know, culture and, uh, and, and decisions and choices and all kinds of things that, that when you look carefully at what's happening in college admissions, you understand it's the, the problems are much more, um, about the system. Um, so I think, I think, I think believing too much in the meritocracy can be really, uh, damaging to those who don't benefit from it, but I think it can, on a social societal level, it can be even more damaging to those who do benefit from it. Wow. The idea that meritocracy can be damaging to people who do benefit from it. It's a really powerful point. Let, let, me, let me take them, build on that, Paul. Uh, one of the things that you uh, recount in your book is how um, the most selected schools, in this case, you're picking on the Ivy League colleges, Ivy League universities, seem to have, no matter what they do, always end up at a set point, a number of, of black students. And the, and, and the kind of the narrative had always been that the reason we have not that many black kids out at these colleges right now is that, you know, we've looked far and wide, we've turned wide, we, we've looked behind every corner, we've turned over, you know, every stone, and, and, and we found all the kids, all the black kids who are academically talented and academically able to be here. And, and we've, we've kind of, we've, we've found them all. And as you describe in the book, that is not exactly the truth. Can you talk about this specific number, how they got there and kind of what that means for us? Yeah. Um, yeah, those numbers. So they came from this one, um, presentation I saw from a, a scholar at, at USC. Um, and, and his, the basic number that he, that he demonstrated was that most, you know, highly selective Ivy league and similar institutions have, uh, almost exactly, or almost exactly 8% of their student body is black or African-American. Um, that's true, you know, throughout the Ivy league, it's true. Uh, and then as I like went and looked at it more, it's true in history too. Like I found this, you know, book that looked at the, the Harvard's class in like 1984, it was 8% black too. Right. Um, so somehow, you know, this number is, is, uh, whether it's written down or not is fixed in the heads of a lot of admissions people. It has been for years. We can let in 8% uh, of our student body can be black. And, and, um, and, you know, Fortunately, and, that's not racist. Right. Uh, and, and so what, what, I mean, the, the, the strange thing that was going on um, while I was doing this reporting is that Harvard was being sued by a, a group that was trying to argue actually that um, admission standards were too low for African-Americans, that Harvard was favoring African-Americans and, and disfavoring Asian-Americans. Um, and, and what felt crazy to me about this uh, research is that when you look at their at their student body, if you listen to the rhetoric of the, the groups that were suing Harvard, you would think they were overrun with black students. And, and they're not by any means. They have 8%, just like they always have. Um, and... Uh, and yeah, so I, I mean, I think, I think, so I, the, one of the students who I followed the most, Kiki Gilbert, uh, a black student when I was mostly reporting on her, she was, she was a freshman at Princeton, you know, that, that fact that the racial makeup of her campus and, and, and sort of coming to understand what Princeton had done and how Princeton, um, manipulated its admissions in order to create that, that number, um, really t- took a toll on her, I think as a, as a black freshman at Princeton. Um, I think it, it, 
she was already pretty radical. I think it radicalized her more. I think it gave her insights into Princeton that she then turned into activism. She's also now um, a rising senior and it has made lots of impact on how Princeton functions and I think will continue to. Um, but it was hard for her, I think, just to, to try to understand, like, what, what, why has Princeton chosen me? How do they see me? What do they think of me? You know, I think for lots of white students, like, you can go through your day not having to worry about that, just having to worry about, you know, your calculus class and your French test. Um, when you're Kiki, like you have, you have to worry about all those things as well, but you have this additional anxiety of trying to figure out how does this institution see me um, and having to sort through all the often contradictory messages that you're getting from different parts of that institution. For all the challenges that we know college, getting into college and, and being successful in college presents to students, particularly to ones who are first generation or, or you know, black or brown kids who are, who are under-resourced. And it seems like such a kind of uh, cautionary tale. Your book also says there are solutions to this. There are things that we know help and, and, and it's, they've been proven. Can you talk about the, the chapters in your book uh, about the great work being done at the University of Texas? These were some of the most inspiring things I've, I've read in years in books about education. It was just, it was wonderful. Uh, the, the, the program that's working with the University Leadership Network, I think I have that right. Uh, and then the, uh, the uh, professor of calculus, uh, Yuri Treisman, uh, I think I have that right, who, who uh, may be one of the most inspiring people in all of education. Can, can you talk, that, talk through that and share that with our listeners? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so I wrote about, I wrote about the university of Texas in two different places. One, one sort of looking institutionally at, uh, at what they were doing to try to improve their graduation rates, mostly under the leadership of this, um, vice provost named David Lottie. Um, so I'll talk about that in a second, but then you're right. I did go back, uh, and, and spend the fall of 2017 going through one freshman calculus class with this professor, Uri Treisman. Um, and that gave me a sort of, uh, uh, worm's eye view of how that effort, how that effort played out in the classroom. So David Lottie, uh, back, I think six, seven years ago was given the, the job, uh, the mission of improving the four-year graduation rate at UT, which was, had become the sort of political football. The governor was mad at UT for, for everything. Um, and, and somehow the compromise that the governor and the leadership of the, of UT came up with is that they would try to improve their four-year graduation rate from about 50% to about 70 what David Lottie did, uh, to his credit, was turn that mission into basically a social justice mission instead of um, just improving the graduation rates for the affluent white students who go to UT. He saw that, that there were these huge disparities in how likely different groups were to be graduating on time. And he concluded, if we want to get to the number uh, and actually help the students that I care about, the best way to do that is to help students who are coming in at UT with uh, lower family incomes from less well-resourced high schools, um, and especially uh, students of color, Black and Latino students. Uh, and so over the course of five years, he put in this whole sort of kitchen sink uh, approach to improving those outcomes. It involved um, right this thing called the Undergraduate Leadership Network, which was a freshman program that um, uh, created a sense of community, sort of regular meetings with freshmen, all of this um, sort of psychological superstructure to make them feel like they were an important part of the UT community, which is not the feeling that a lot of first-generation students uh, would get in the past arriving at UT. Um, but also finding ways to do internships on campus to, to sort of uh, weave those students more into the fabric of the institution, get them into good, good sections of uh, introductory classes in freshman year, um, mentoring tutoring, advising, uh, help all along the way. And it had an, an amazing effect. So he not only did he hit his mark and improve the overall graduation rate at UT for your graduation rate from 50% to 70%, the groups that uh, that gained the most were um, black students, were Latino students, were first generation students, were low income students. Um, so that's a kind of transformation that just has not happened at very many other campuses. And, and the way that it happened was not through any sort of 
single high-tech program, but was by doing everything. I think one of his insights was you know, students are surrounded, especially first-generation students, are surrounded by so many different messages about belonging, about ability, uh, about how the campus sees them, that just trying to find one perfect program that's going to solve all those problems isn't going to work, that you have to surround them with a whole different environment. And so he looked at all of the different levers that uh, university leadership had to work with and tried to pull as many of them in the direction of helping those students succeed as he could. You know, one of my favorite um, insights of your book is this idea of belonging uncertainty. And again, you know, kids who are, who, who don't feel like they see themselves represented there, you know, or first generation, low income, underrepresented minority, um, so on and so forth. Um, and you talk about the belonging uncertainty can be, it can be good and bad, right? It can be a source of real stress, but it can also be a chance for them to kind of rewire their sense of themselves. Is that, is that kind of what, a big part of what you, when you think about the social mobility of the university, you think that's part of the opportunity? Yeah. I mean, I think it's this, uh, I think belonging uncertainty is something that, that probably every student has to a certain degree when they arrive on a campus, but especially um, first generation students who don't have a family connection or a, to college or to this particular institution. Um, and what these psychological researchers like Claude Steele and Gregory Walton and David Yeager um, have shown is that it creates this, this, this pressure in students where they are just looking around them for, for messages. Do I belong here or not? Um, and in lots of ways, that's a really perilous situation because uh, you're, you're going to get messages that say you don't belong, right? Like you're going to get a bad grade. You're going to uh, have a, have, have a, you know, someone on campus who doesn't say hi when you say hi to them, uh, a fight with a roommate, any of those little interactions that to a student who is not uh, covered with, uh, who is not deep in belonging uh, uncertainty would just seem like, you know, a lousy five minutes can become the beginning of a sort of spiral of, of unbelonging for a student uh, that can often lead to them dropping out. But the good part of that belonging uncertainty is that they are susceptible to messages, positive messages of belonging. And so if you surround them by and keep hitting them with messages that this is a place for you, um, and, and that involves actually saying those things out loud, but not only saying them out loud, not just slogans and t-shirts, but also uh, proving it to them by the way you treat those students, um, then they can latch on to that sense of belonging and connect to the university um, in, in really powerful ways. And that's a lot of, I think, what, what was happening in Uri Treisman's calculus class. Mm-hmm. You know, you, as you may know, Bill, Bill Strickshoot is my co-author for The Self-Driven Child. We wrote a piece, of, uh, I guess about a year ago now, uh, at Thanksgiving about the dozen kids who we, whom we knew who were already home from college, first year of college, to stay, which is obviously a concern for anyone. That's a really expensive way to spend $30,000, dollars $70,000 and have your kid back in, in seven weeks. And, uh, you know, these challenges are probably disproportionately suffered by kids who feel like they don't belong there as much, but, but it's a challenge that, that, I mean, I can remember starting showing up in college and do I, you know, I think, I think those are things that we all, all students will kind of grapple with. Um, Do you have advice for parents who or kids who are starting the college admissions process of things that they can look for to, to have a sense or some confidence that, um, I will be supported here that, um, you know, that, that the, the college is going to try to make me feel like I belong. I mean, part of that, if you're, if you're say a black kid and, and 8% isn't enough to feel like you belong, then you may be looking for, 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 for higher percentage um, of kids like you, but are there things you can, you, you can, can point parents to beyond just numbers of, of institutional commitment to, to make a kid feel like he belongs there. So he's more likely to be successful. Yeah, so that, I think that's a complicated que- uh, question. I, I, I want to do my best to answer it because I, I feel like the, the um, you know, the, the process of creating belonging. I think it does depend a lot on the institution, and I think this is this is something that a lot of institutions didn't realize ten years ago, and I think more and more do now. But I think it also there there are a lot of things that um, students can do to increase that connection and that sense of belonging. 
parents' job, I think, is the especially complex one, right? <laughs> because so so when you're talking about just making making decisions about college, yes, I think absolutely. You know, looking looking for all sorts of signs from the college, from um, graduation rates, not only for everybody but broken down by different demographic groups. I think that's going to be really useful. Um, looking at you know the different programs that are out there, talking to uh, current students who come from your background uh, and and recent graduates, and trying to get a sense of what their experience was like. I, th- I feel like all of those things are really useful in making those decisions. Once a student is uh, off to college uh, and, and trying to weather the storm of especially that first semester, um, you know, I do think I do think we need to put a lot of the responsibility on the institution. There's a lot that an institution can do, as David Lottie showed at the University of Texas, to create that sense of belonging. Um, but I think there's also lots of things that students can do. And it's just all of those things that we often tell students in, in freshman year, you know, going out and meeting people and joining clubs and joining teams and just doing stuff that like, it is a little bit of a, you do need a bit of a shotgun approach because they're, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, maybe the cheer squad isn't going to work for you, but the newspaper is or vice versa. So like trying lots of things is, it does seem to be the way that lots of students make connections, you know? I mean, you know, Matthew Rivera in Hartford tried everything at, at, um, at Trinity and then finally found, well, I've actually go, got to go off campus to find that sense of belonging, but it still worked for him. The trick I think comes for parents, right? Because like, if you're the parent at home, um, you cannot be a part of the of the process of belonging for your student at their institution because um, you know you're not there, uh, and and a lot of what they have to do, and especially in that first semester, is separate from you uh, and find this new identity in uh, in the institution where they are, and that I think is. Um, uh, is tricky for any parent to try to to try to make work. Um, you know, I think of like this one calculus student who I wrote about, Yvonne Martinez, uh, who who uh, she's she's a uh, student at University of Texas. She is um, taking this this uh, really tough calculus class. She's freaked out that she's not going to do well in this midterm, and she calls her mom for support as she's walking into the exam. And her mom says, "Oh, don't worry. You know, if you tease too hard, you can just come back to San Antonio and live with me, and I'll cook for you, and you." Can go to community college, you know, total like warmth and belonging and good mothering, except that it was exactly not what Yvonne needed to hear at that point. She needed to hear, uh, no, you can't come home. <laughs> you're, you're at UT. This is where you belong. You're going to ace this test. Um, and so, so I think it's really tough for parents to find that, uh, that line of supporting our kids, you know, telling them that, that, that they do have a place to come back to, but also saying like, you've got this, you, you can figure this out for yourself. And there, were, there, I forget where the research was, but but a study, and maybe this was in Dale and Kruger, that that found that one of the single best indicators of kids' persistence in college is whether they connect to at least one adult on campus. And you talk about it in the start of your book, Paul, about how um, how there's this really social aspect of connecting with your teachers and you know professors, excuse me, and grabbing coffee and blah 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 blah, and that low-income kids were that was just not what they did. They thought it was supposed to be you know the professors over here and I'm I'm over there. Um, and when you see kids who are kind of moving from the the, um, the the family or the culture at home to kind of this new one that they're creating at university, they need to have their tribe, right? Whether it's, you know, you know, Kim playing rugby or connecting with this, with this professor. And of course, you know, that again, that story about Yvonne Martinez is just, I mean, it's just such a tearjerker. And in that case, you know, Treisman reaches out to her. And so one of the things that I, I keep, I think about, um, for parents to talk to their kids about how valuable it is to find those connections even in high school. And I, and I bring this back because I think we think of college admissions of grades and test scores, grades and test scores, grades and test scores, where playing soccer, even if you're not great, it's a source of connection, right? You know, doing these activities you're suggesting, Paul, we're practicing doing those in high school so that arguably we can do those in college because we need to have these connections beyond just going to class and turning in papers. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think... 
you know, I, I feel like the role of extracurriculars is this really complicated thing because um, on the one hand, you know, I think the, there's lots of evidence that it's a huge part of students feeling a sense of belonging. On the other hand, there, there's the evidence that the, the sociologist I wrote about, Lauren Rivera, uh, explained that it's actually this way that, you know, privilege is perpetuated um, at institutions like uh, highly selective universities. What I feel like is that is that I think the message that's most helpful for for parents to give kids is is that yes those those extracurricular activities are really important they're a great way to to expand your tribe to to find new people um, to learn skills to find have a sense of belonging um, but that part of freshman year should be trying new things, right? So that if you just get in there and you've got your your, your soccer tribe and you're going to stick with your soccer tribe, and in fact, your soccer tribe involves like some of the kids who went to the schools that you knew down the block uh, when you were in high school, you know, that's going to be effective in certain ways, but it's not actually going to broaden your horizons all that much. And and. I think for for students who have those advantages to put themselves in a bit of a first generation student experience in freshman year and to try something they've never done uh, and to learn those skills, not only that you get from from a good extracurricular activity, but from figuring one out from actually having to find your tribe instead of just having it given to you because, uh, you know, you, you, you signed up for this this uh, this extracurricular uh, activity or sport back in middle school. Um, so, so that's one, that's one way that I would push parents to, uh, to, or push, push, push parents to push students, um, not to just settle for the identity that, uh, that you arrived, uh, from high school with. Hmm. Can I talk, I want to see if you can talk a little bit about, oh, this is the hardest part about Raj Chetty and the, the, the lessons that we, we think we know about how important it is to go to this or that college knowing that the sense that how important it is to go to this or that college is one of the most crazy making things for any kid, parent, teacher in high school. Uh, yeah. So I had a lot of parents when I would, when I wrote about this in the book and when I went out and talked about it last fall, uh, who, who were both totally drawn to this research, uh, not only by Raj, but by Carolyn Hoxby, uh, an economist from Stanford, um, but but so who were drawn to it, but were also like horrified by it and wished that I would stop talking about it. And I feel like it 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 is hard to find the right balance and how to think about this research, because the the research is clear that um, you know the more selective institution that students go to, the more on average that it boosts their future earnings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really useful information, not for an individual student who is trying to decide where to go to college, because there's a big margin of error there, right? Um, There are lots of students for whom uh, the most selective college is not the right one, uh, for whom that's going to actually take them on a really bad path, uh, and where a different college is going to be a much, much better fit. Where I think that information is useful is when we look at it as as a social issue, right? That the fact that these institutions that have the most concentrations of well-off kids, kids who grew up in, in affluence, are in fact the, the schools that are then perpetuating that privilege the most, creating the most high-income uh, uh, graduates. That's a social problem, right? And, and that's something that we all need to fix. You know, we, we tend to think about higher education as this force for social mobility. And the research that just uh, I found most powerful that I just kept coming up against and that I think we have this real resistance to believing is that higher education in for individual students might still be a good engine of social mobility for the country as a whole it is the opposite it is a force that is really perpetuating inequality that is is uh, creating a barrier to mobility for millions and millions of students um, and so it's hard to look at that research through both lenses at once. If you're just trying to figure out where you want your kid to go to school, it's hard not to just look at it and say like, yep, most selective going to have the biggest payoff. That's where I want my kid to go. Uh, from that point of view, I don't think it's particularly important research from the point of view of how we need to fix higher education and fix our country in order to create more mobility. I feel like it's highly useful. You spend, um, I'm you, you spend a good bit of time talking about how powerful the GI Bill was 
in creating really what we think of as the modern middle class, right? Um, and when that was first promulgated, that 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 that, that leaders, educational leaders, thought it was going to be a threat, a threat to American education that we'd be bringing in folks who were, you know, not worthy of a, of a college education. And uh, they weren't quite right. Yeah, um, it was really fascinating to me going and uh, and looking back through that history. It was a period that I sort of knew a little bit about, but didn't really understand the background on. And it, I, I think there are lots of ways that there's a parallel to now. I mean, it was mm-hmm. this moment where the country decided we need more education, right? We, we, we have a, a disconnect between the skills that our young people have and the skills that this economy needs. And the GI Bill was was a perfect, uh, well, not quite perfect. It was a good solution to that problem. It educated many, many uh, millions more students, especially, especially you know, working class um, students who would not have been going to college otherwise. Uh, it tended uh, one of the one of its imperfections is it tended to leave out uh, students of color and women, um, thus perpetuating those inequalities for several more decades. But it did change the class structure of who was graduating from college in a really big way. Um, and I feel like we are now at this other point, uh, uh, at another point in some ways very similar, where all of the indications in our economy is that we need more better educated young people. We need to be giving out more college degrees, not fewer. Um, and we do not have a national system to make that happen. Uh, and that was what the GI Bill was. And when we invested in a big way in our young people, too much to the surprise of many people, including lawmakers who had passed that law, um, students really responded. Uh, and they graduated in huge numbers. They went off and, and you know achieved amazing mobility and created the great American middle class that powered the most successful economy uh, you know, in the history of the world world in in late 20th century United States. And so this is a moment where we are faced with a similar situation and we are not making the same decision. (laughs) Instead, we are just um, cutting public funding for public higher education. We are pulling back in all sorts of ways. We are denying opportunity to uh, young people who are the modern equivalent of those returning GIs. And we're making it as hard as possible for them to get the education that they not only deserve, but that they will benefit from and then we will benefit from them getting. so my hope is that we are uh, not too far from another GI Bill moment where we will look again at how we have made these decisions and decide to invest as a country in higher education for not just the people who are used to higher education, but for a much larger population. Um, right now, we are not in that moment, but my hope is that we're getting there. So to repeat the fact, we've, we've really transferred to thinking of education as a private investment with a private payoff when history shows us that across the board good education or great education is really a social benefit and therefore we should make a social investment in it is that about right yeah that's right i mean i think i think a lot of us still think of k-12 education as a public good right not all of us but but a lot of us do yeah. um but i think not that many Americans think about higher education as a public good. And I think a lot of the messages that we've got from the media and from certain politicians over the last couple of decades have reinforced that, you know, we, we have this message that, you know, colleges are these sort of greedy machines that are, are, are uh, taking our money and are not benefiting our students. And the reason, you know, one of the, the main reason that tuitions are going up so much, that debt is going up so much is that we have stopped investing in public higher education. Um, and so, so there is this opportunity for us to to look at the data, to look at you know the the economics of it, and understand that that higher education is a public good in the same way that uh, that K twelve education is a public good. When you have a better educated, more broadly educated population, the country does better. There's more opportunity, more mobility, more productivity. Um, and we don't think about that about it that way these these days. Uh, and you know, like so many things in American life right now, I think data is going to help maybe make that case. But it really is just about a shift in our values as a country. Hmm. Um, there are lots of parts of American life where we are uh, letting selfishness um, and short term thinking uh, triumph over over uh, community thinking, over the public thinking, over thinking about ourselves as an actual a nation. You know that that's where we support each other and where we pull ourselves up together. 
so my hope again is that we are we are coming into a period where we're going to think about that think that way a little bit more but i think it, it's going to take that kind of mental shift in order to fix the real problems at the heart of higher education one big change that has come to pass since your book uh, came out was uh college board and the sat have sort of taken one on the chin do you want to talk about that for a few minutes? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm curious. I'm curious. I mean, you know, one thing that I that I learned both from reporting on College Board and from you know uh, and talking to you and 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 hearing about your work is that um, the College Board is a very resilient institution, and the SAT is a very resilient test. Um, you know, I think there are there are lots of ways that 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 those tests are woven into the fabric of uh, both K, you know, high school education and college education. So, yes. There's lots of data points to suggest that the SAT and the ACT are in less strong uh, shape than they were uh, a year ago. Um, and, you know, you know, from reading my book, I think that's a good thing. I think that we've got to downplay how important those tests are in college admissions uh, if we want to create a more diverse and broad-based um, college going population. Uh, but I don't think it's over yet. I think there are still um, lots of ways that those institutions are are resilient and, and, and sort of dug into their position in higher education. The the empire will strike back. The empire indeed <laughs> is striking back. But this is, yes, the, the, I don't know if the Death Star has totally been blown up yet, but we're close We're close to the end of, uh, of a new hope uh, and not quite at the empire strikes back yet. <laughs> College board at the Death Star. I can work with that. I can work with that. You know, one of the things that I love the way you reported on the time that I spent with kids, uh, I think really speaks to a through line in the whole book that um, when you talked about Ariel, that I took seriously her anxieties and her fears and I didn't poo poo them. Um, and as we started the our conversation or talking about stress and say, we, we can have a conversation about it, the things we can do, we can put it into context. <clears throat> and that was really the kind of thing that I think is most is done most easily when there's a one-on-one connection, you know, the same way with the Yvonne Martinez, right. That, that, what was the line? He said, uh, um, I, you know, effectively, I know you, I know you have a what it takes to be a mathematician. You may not believe it yet, but I've been teaching math for 50 years and I know it's in you. And when you talked a little bit about College Board trying to pick up on the, those, those nudges of Carolyn Hawksby and using, doing things with technology, uh, that the, the technology won't, um, doesn't solve things. We need the connection, right? Um, so could you tell a little bit, just you know, your version of the story of me and, and RAL and, and kind of ultimately where why human connection is so important and great teachers will always be great teachers and we're not going to outsource that to uh, videos. Yeah, I think there's no question that that like, so I saw this with, with Ariel, but I saw it with lots of your students as well. I mean, they, they were benefiting from uh, not just, you, you know, your, your tips and tricks on how to, how to, how to overcome the SAT. They were benefiting from your presence in the room. You, your, your, uh, wait, What's your term for the stress-free presence? The a non-anxious presence. Yes, a non-anxious yeah. presence. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, a kid like Ariel or lots of your students are surrounded by anxious presences <laughs> in their lives. Um, and so, to have someone who is that non-anxious presence, uh, who is able to say, "Like, you got this. We got this together." Um, it mattered a whole lot to her, and and it was true with lots of other students as well. And especially, I think that's the, that's the insidious thing about these tests is something I learned from you is that they, they are designed to create stress, right? That that's how they separate the, the highest scoring from the lower scoring students, the ones who um, get stressed out uh, and can't manage their time and manage their mood and manage everything else when they're in the, in the testing room uh, are going to lose points. And the ones who are able to go in there with their swag music and their attitude uh, and say, <laughs> I got this, um, you know, they're, they're going to benefit in terms of their scores for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with their, with their knowledge of trigonometry. Right. Right. Um, right, right. And so, you know, in the big picture, that's not actually the right way that we to, to figure out who should be getting into uh, our most selective colleges. But for any given student to have that experience of having uh, an adult, a non-anxious presence, a teacher in their lives who is not only giving them um, this important information, but giving this, this intense sense of confidence, belonging, uh, ability, that is transformative, I think, not only for a test score, but going forward in life. Hmm. 
I love that. And I should say for people like, who is Ariel? She was a terrific young woman, super academic from an environment that had more pressure, some of them self-inflicted than she needed. And we kind of undid a lot of it with a, an early morning bike ride. Uh, it's a wackadoodle story. <laughs> just, to read, just to read that as embarrassing as the story was. Yeah. Um, I hope that anyone listening will pick up the book and read back to back how children succeed uh, in the years that matter most. It's such a, just a, from my perspective, compelling through line of how we could if we were more thoughtful and more committed, organize life and use social policy to not only help kids develop brains that are driven, that are gritty, that are resilient, but also create education, including higher education that gets better outcomes. Because having more kids have, have healthy brains and good educations, it's not only good for them, it's good for their families, it's good for their communities, it's good for the whole darn country. And I think your, these books together really are, are such a, it's not, it's not easy work, but show a really clear direction or almost prescription of, of some of the things that we could be doing to, to, to elevate all of our kids. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the complicated things about reporting the years that matter most was that it, it, it I was really trying to go back and forth, but from the, the, the specific to the universal. And so there, there would be moments in your office or in uh, Uri Treisman's calculus class uh, or sitting with Kiki Gilbert uh, or, you know, with Angel Perez making admissions decisions where I would feel like what was happening right in front of me was super important and often, you know, moving and intense. But really, what, what I try to do in the book, um, and I think what, what I hope you're responding to, is is trying to weave those pieces together to show that this is not these are not just individual stories. This is a system, um, and it's a system that has a lot of flaws. Uh, <laughs> and that even if if you know for individual students at individual moments, it is working great and creating great moments of connection and belonging and and mobility and success. Um, it is not serving the national what we need as a nation. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I, I hope that there are not only useful pieces of information in there for, for students and families and teachers, but that there are useful informations on the level of uh, policy and national reform, too. Mm, I agree. From my perspective, one of the most important books looking at higher education, certainly that I've read, and I hope everyone picks it up. Paul, I'm really grateful for you taking time. It's been uh, years since we uh, were goofing around with my kids, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your time today. Well, thanks so much. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.